0: come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to lliw.net to register. <laughs>
1: Well, I've known Dr. Bailey for more than 40 years. I started as a young nurse on the cardiothoracic surgery unit in 1971. And he was a resident at that time. He went away to the Sick Children's Hospital in Toronto to do special training in pediatric cardiac surgery. And when he came back, he had a passion that he hadn't had before.
2: He witnessed what is known technically as hypoplastic left heart syndrome where the left portion of the heart is normally what pushes the blood out into the system. And these kids did not have a left ventricle. And so that defect was 100% fatal.
1: You can't imagine, you're expecting to have a normal baby and then your child is born with this incorrectable heart disease. And you see this beautiful child is perfect in every other way. And he believed that heart transplantation was the solution to their problem. Well, at that point in time, there were no
2: infant hearts. There was nobody that was doing infant heart transplantation. And the kids with the hypoplastic heart defects continued to come along and continued to die. At one point in time, he said, well, we don't have infant hearts to transplant. What about uh, using an animal heart? And an opportunity came along, and Lenny was far enough along in his experimentation work that he approached that mom and said, here's the story, we know what's gonna happen. We would like to try to help her by putting in a baboon heart. And that was baby Faye. It was a failure that he took very personally. But what it did was, it caught everybody in the world's attention. With the technical abilities to pull that off, heart donors became much more accessible. And from that point on, Lenny was able to use infant hearts for transplantation work. Without his vision, there are lots of kids out there running around today that would not be alive.
3: I grew up with... Definitely noticed that he was something of an importance around just with people. We would go to meetings or we traveled quite a bit for the mission trips to do surgeries. And at home, I mean, it was just, he was dad and you know, he was definitely our superhero. But we'd always be outside playing at a big yard that was just filled with trees. We'd always help us make tree forts with my brother, Connor, and build RC tracks. And we went skiing quite a bit. So we were either up snow skiing or he loved to windsurf. So we'd always go down to Lake Paris every day after He'd get off work and go windsurfing. We would always race, or walk, going to the hospital, we'd always race up and down to his office, up the stairs, so. He always had such a fun sense of humor, so everything was a joke, always smiling. You know, if somebody asked him, are you Dr. Bailey, he'd like, no, I'm Len. He almost shied away from it when people would bring it up.
1: So I remember the story well, because it was the last time that I was taking call as a transplant coordinator. I had married and moved to Portland, Oregon. And also Dr. Bailey was not on call this particular night. But there had been a young girl, she was about five years old, who'd come to us from Japan, and she had waited a long time and was starting to develop near-fatal arrhythmias. The cardiologist said that this child probably wouldn't live beyond the next day. There came a donor call about 2 in the morning, this was her only chance and so I called Dr. Bailey and as we often found out when he's sleeping he mumbles and, mm-hmm. you're never sure if he hears what you're saying but he was processing it and I told him what the other surgeon had said that it was you know too far away it was too small it was too long of a procurement time and that this child was you know failing quickly and he said well I guess we have to let it go. And I said, okay, well, that seemed reasonable to me. And so I called the people in Pennsylvania and said, I, you know, I'm sorry, we can't use the heart. And I went, tried to go back to sleep, and about 20 minutes later, beep, 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 and it's Dr. Bailey, who's awake now. And he said, do you think I could come in and put this child on to bypass, and we could go get the heart? I said, I've already turned the heart down. Oh, get it back. And so we did that. We went out, and we got that heart. We came back transplanted it into her and uh, she never looked back. She's done very, very well. She's graduated from university and uh, she's living a beautiful life in Japan. But she would have died you know, if it really hadn't been him. And he wasn't on call. He always would take the call. He always, he just took ownership all the time. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to work with someone like that who is predictable, who's always there, who believes in their dream always? The demands on Dr. Bailey were tremendous. I mean, we'd be awakened in the middle of the night, many, many times, night after night. Sometimes he slept by the bed of a sick baby, slept in a chair, and we would go on procurements as far away as Halifax, Nova Scotia, or we went to Puerto Rico, to New York. All of this was in a day's work, and usually through the middle of the night, the next day he'd be back and have to do his next his regular operating schedule on top of that. I, I didn't realize how disruptive we were to their family life until um, uh, one time we had a celebration when we had done our 100th uh, infant transplant, and Nancy Bailey asked if she could get up and speak. And she told of several times when we had found him, one time they were in a campground of America with the boys. They were in, And he had mentioned to us that he was going away. And we got a donor call. We needed to have another surgeon. There wasn't one available. We sent the police in to get him. And they're overhead paging him, Dr. Bailey, Dr. Bailey. And they went in and they took him out and left Nancy there with the boys. And it was a pace that actually, I would imagine very few people could keep up. But we never ever found the bottom of his Um, enthusiasm for what he was doing. I remember we had these big old clunky cell phones that we used to carry around and he would often ask to borrow that cell phone when we had a quiet moment and he would call his wife and let her know he was okay and what was happening.
3: So growing up my parents Always had what I call the biggest love story. So, to the day right before they passed, they would leave love notes every morning. He'd leave a note for her and buy their coffee and pick roses for her, and she would do the same. His whole world was my mom. I mean, through surgeries or whatever it was, I mean, he always wanted to talk to her, see her, be around her. So, I think it's just the love that they had.
1: The stakes were always very high. Sometimes we won when we weren't really expecting to, and other times we lost when we thought we should win. And the thing that struck me was that at his memorial service, there were many of the families who came to his memorial service who had lost a child, but they wanted to honor him because they know that he tried to save their child. And for them, that was important and and that was enough.
2: You don't learn medicine from a book. You learn medicine from your mentors. And Len was the best. One can look at the individuals in thoracic surgery, heart surgery that he mentored. They have been extremely successful and they have carried that enthusiasm. And I'm sure they'll carry that with them the rest of their professional careers.
1: The first baby that we operated on was four days old. He's now 34 years old, his birthday, with that same original heart. So. Uh, We've been blessed all along. You know, Dr. Bailey kept saying, I wonder what they'll be. It was, I know, very rewarding for him to see them grow up and become their own person.
2: The nature of his illnesses, I think are reasonably well known. He had a recurrence of a cancer process. Simultaneously, the love of his life, Nancy, also developed a malignant process that ultimately was fatal as well. Despite failing health, his goal was to hang on as long as he could to give Nancy the support that she needed. And uh, ultimately, as that disease process took her, it was only a matter of a few weeks that he felt that his work here was complete.
1: Well, I think that um, I'll always carry the essence of him with me. I mean, to have that example of how to do life for so many years. It was amazing what he chose to do. I mean, all these people, hundreds would be dead if he hadn't started doing this. And he started and then others followed. You know, those doctors who came here from Japan for his memorial service, They had been here in the early days. In Japan, they didn't have organ donation, and they wanted to be ready for a time when the laws would change and people would accept organ donation, so they wanted to be prepared. And then they've gone back to Japan and they've changed the laws in Japan, so now there is organ donation. In some way, he's sort of responsible for that too. That ripple effect is, in his case, is just amazing. And fortunately for me, I was able to Share in his dream and become part of his team that um, brought heart transplantation to not only Solomon Linda but really to the world.
3: My dad's mission always in life is just not necessarily change the world but to change healthcare. To know that there's always going to be a, a better route for healing people that need the help. I think if I could take one thing from my dad that I'd want to be the most like, it's just how he was with people, just generally cared for everybody, and it was just always. I mean, he cared more about others than he did himself, it seems, most of the time. So I think that was a good way to live.
0: I want to ask if you would picture in your mind's eye a scene. It's an actual true to life scene. With legacy over us in the background, with thinking about living lives that matter, picture a scene. It's a funeral, it's a funeral train they're on their way to the cemetery to inter their loved one. Many cheeks have been streaked with the hot tears of grief, and now it's time to say goodbye. A child that was born and that grew up and that lived life and that no doubt lived a life that mattered has now come to the end of that road. It's a dangerous time, politically unstable, There are threats almost around every corner. So even for this funeral train, they're on the watch. They're keeping an eye out. Thus it is when they see that band crest the hill not far away and they can see that they're armed to the teeth and that they're moving quickly, they know there's trouble ahead. It's time to find an escape. But it's a funeral. They have the body of their loved one with them. What are they to do? But they find something. When it's life or death, then death has to recede into the background, and you have to take care of the living. There is a tomb nearby where someone has already been entombed. They rip open the tomb, throw in the body of their loved one, landing right on the body already interred, and turn to escape. It's as they turn to escape that something happen, happens, something that terrifies them, something that happens to which we need to pay attention. Because as they turn to leave, suddenly there is a movement in the darkness of the tomb. They catch it. The movement is someone standing up, standing up in the tomb. It is the person They came to bury, standing up. You may be saying right about now, Randy, I know you want to have a creative sermon intro, but this is ridiculous. You've gone too far this time. Just in case you're thinking that, I want to read you the story, the actual story. In 2 Kings chapter 13, just two verses long, listen to what the tale says Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. What in the world? I wasn't told that story in Sabbath school growing up. What does that mean? came to life and stood up on his feet. First, you have to consider the context. You remember the name Elijah. Not Elisha, but Elijah. (coughs) Elijah was that prophet that burst onto the center stage of Israel's life, just appeared. He was that fire and brimstone, blood and guts prophet that had a terse confrontation with King Ahab. It's not going to rain until I say so. He changed the trajectory of Israel. His life is characterized by ups and downs, sharp twists and turns, being on fire for God and being in the pit of despair. That's Elijah. He is then swept up to heaven, the story tells us, in a chariot of fire. Enter Elisha. Elijah and Elisha, their names sound similar, but most of the similarities end there. Well, they both lived lives that mattered. But beyond that, not many similarities. Elisha was quite different. I want to read you the words from the SDA, Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, from the Bible dictionary of the commentary set, saying some things about both Elisha and then Elijah and Elisha together. Here's what it says. In the presence of need, Elisha was ever solicitous and large-hearted. In the presence of limited understanding of the divine will, he was tolerant and patient. In the presence of danger, he manifested firm, unflinching courage. In the presence of evil, he was stern and severe without being vindictive. Whereas Elijah tended to be ascetic in dress and diet in place of abode and in his limited contacts with people, at least insofar as the record goes, Elisha lived close to the people he served, loved social life. Unlike the life of Elijah who appeared on the stage of sacred history for a few striking events, Elisha's life is recorded as a steady ministry during which he constantly ministered to the needs of his fellow men as individuals as well as to the spiritual life of the nation as well. A whole while Elijah was fire and brimstone blood and guts Elisha was a healing person in a broken world caring for the needs not just for a few up-and-down events but over a period not of years but of decades he ministered to Israel for almost 50 years Elisha and that yet when we come to the end it is brief and and terse I mean you read it we read it in our passage if you happen to have the misfortune of having to plan a memorial service for someone you love you know that behind the scenes you're on the computer you're on pen and paper you're trying to put together the eulogy the life sketch to tell the story how do you capture a life how do you tell that story yet when it comes to the end of elisha's life five words in the english three words in the hebrew Elisha died and was buried, boom, end of story. You you kind of stagger back and think, isn't there more than that? Can't you say more about how much his life mattered, how much it counted, what he did for good in the world? Elisha died and was buried, next. What in the world? We read that and we think, well, How do we get ready to that moment when we pass off the scene? Whether passing off the scene means we go to our rest or we leave this community or what? How do we prepare for that? Rick Williams, member of our community here, friend of mine, told me a story just the other day. a, A woman, a senior citizen, talking to an acquaintance of hers about the fact that she was about to get married again at 80. The acquaintance said, Wow, you've been married before? Yes, I have. How many times? Three. I'm getting married for a fourth time. Wow. You must like marriage. I do. Well, tell me about it. She said When I was 20, I married a banker. It was a good marriage. He helped me a lot with finances, kind of set me up for life. But sadly, he went to his rest and I was left alone. When I was 40, I married a circus performer, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey. Now, that was quite a marriage, always exciting. Won't forget him. A few years later, sadly, he died, left alone again. At 60, I married a pastor. Oh, you're marrying uphill now. Yes, (laughs) Married a pastor. Well, that was deeply meaningful to me as I came to understood more of the things of God, but sadly, he went to his rest as well. Wow. And now you're 80. Yes. Who are you marrying? I'm marrying a mortician. Wow. Well, you've had a bit to do with morticians, I guess. Yes. Well, that's incredible. Four marriages in one life. What do you make of it all? She said, well, you know, married to a banker, a circus performer, a pastor, a mortician. I just think of it this way. One for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Well, that mortician's name might as well be Elisha because Elisha's going to help us understand something about getting ready to go, whether that means literally go or whether that means we leave a place, a community, a group, and we leave a vacuum in our place. What do we do? Every one of us will leave a legacy. Did Elisha's life matter Now, you may think I'm just asking that to be rhetorical, but let me read you the last sentence of the quote I read to you just a bit earlier from the SDA Bible Dictionary, because the last sentence of that same paragraph describing Elijah and Elisha and their ministries says something about Elisha that causes me to ask, did his life matter? Here's what it says. Although for a time there seems to have been an encouraging response on the part of the nation to his leadership as a prophet, the reforms he set in motion were short-lived and did not prevent the complete dissolution of the northern kingdom some 75 years after his death. Translated, things went well while he was ministering for the most part. But then when he left, it ultimately fell apart. To a situation like that, you have to ask, did his life matter? Elisha died and was buried. Five words, end of story. Except, except for the fact that there was another funeral. There was another group moving to another grave suddenly under threat, frightened, throwing their loved one's body, landing on the bones of Elisha, and he stands up. What does that mean? Two Old Testament scholars, one briefly, the other a bit longer, make statements that might help us. First is Paul House who writes this about that incident. Not even death stops this prophet's ministry. This final Elisha story provides a fitting summary of the prophet and his ministry. Elijah has gone to heaven without dying. Elisha has kept giving Israel life after he has died. Both have an enduring impact, but in different ways. Now the second scholar, Old Testament scholar Chun Leong Xiao, picks up on this concept with these words, as if to ensure that the point is not missed, that the abiding effects of Elisha's ministry will continue even after his death, the narrator then tells a somewhat comical but nevertheless powerful story of an event that happened after Elisha had died and was buried. A funeral of another man is taking place when a marauding band of Moabites come to a region in Israel. In their hurry to avoid the Moabites, the people burying the man simply throw the corpse into a grave, which (laughs) just happens to be Elisha's. When the corpse comes in contact with Elisha's skeleton, the dead man is revived. The possibility that this resurrection was a result of the contact of the dead man's body with that of Elisha is reminiscent of Elisha's resurrection of the dead child of the Shunammite woman in chapter 4. The present story is even more poignant, however. For Elisha has long been dead and buried, his body having decayed until only the skeleton is left. Yet even in death, Elisha's power lives and enlivens, even as the mere retelling of his power empowers and enlivens despite his absence. As in life, so even in death. His power not only affects kings in the international arena, but it also brings to life ordinary folk, even an unnamed dead man. Lesson, live so that even when you're gone, your life matters for good. Live so that even when you're gone, your life matters for good. Can you imagine? Even when there, forgive me, is nothing but a skeleton Elisha's power continues. Why? Because of the God he served, the God for whom he lived, the God whose message he communicated. Understand that after his death, there was great question in Israel. We could summarize it by just asking, where is God? What has happened to God? Elijah's gone. Elisha's gone. The nation is imploding. What are we going to do? Has God forgotten us? And then almost, as Seau put it, in a comical gesture, God says, you think I'm gone? You think the God of Elisha doesn't live anymore? You think the God of Elisha can no longer make a difference in human life? Then just watch this. Live so that even when you're gone, your life continues to matter for good. We will all leave a legacy. It's not a question of whether or not we will leave a legacy. It's a question of what kind of legacy we will leave. I'd like to read to you of another person who died right there during that period of Israel and Judah's history. He was a contemporary with Elisha, overlapped for a number of years in Elisha's ministry and for this king's reign. Elisha ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. This king reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah. But his reign and Elisha's ministry overlapped. He, too, came to the end of his life. About him, too, a eulogy is written. A statement is made regarding the impact of his life. His name? Jehoram. King Jehoram. His father was Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat had lived to serve God. But his son? Not so very different choices. In fact, to give you just a feel for what he was like, as soon as he ascended to the throne, he slaughtered all of his brothers just to make sure there was no competition, slaughtered them in cold blood. And that was just the beginning. By the time he was done, he had led Israel into the debauched practices of some of the foreign gods that debased the entire land. With that in mind, Listen to the chronicler's words. 2 Chronicles 21, verse 20. Listen to how his death is described. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. He was a young man. And he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He passed away to no one's regret. To no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Imagine writing the homily for that service. You've been to those services. I've been been a part of those services where you listen to what's said up front, and you want to go open the casket just to make sure. Did I come to the right service? Not sure this is the one because you don't recognize it. They made no bones about it here with Jehoram. He died to no one's regret. The homily was short and simple, dead and gone, buried, praise the Lord, and pass the grits. We're done with him, out of the way, over. Two lives lived right in the same period of time. Both left legacies. You will leave a legacy. You will even leave a legacy if you're a student in this place. With two years, three years, four years, eight years, whatever you spend here, when you leave this place, there will be something left behind because you were here. If you're a faculty member, spend a decade or two teaching here, there will be a legacy you leave behind. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, you will leave a legacy. Our legacies are often captured by what people say about us and say about what we always do. Well, Mom always used to say that, fill in the blank. That's your legacy. Dad always used to fill in the blank. It's your legacy. It's not a question of whether or not you're going to leave one. It's merely a question of what you're going to leave. That's the question. Will it be that your influence causes life even after you're long gone, or will it be to no one's regret? Thank God. You know, it's been said, everybody causes joy, some when they come, some when they go. (laughs) Legacy. That's the reality. And that was the experience of Elisha's life. Elisha spent his life in three principal ways. Number one, elisha prophesied in other words he spoke for God he spoke words that God placed in his mouth just like we have scripture and we can speak that's what elisha spent his life doing that was part of his legacy so you have to ask what am I communicating to others about God to my own family about God secondly he was a healer he healed he was a healing presence in a broken world folks our world is ruptured It's fractured. The question is, are we adding to the fracture by our anger, by our social media posts, by our demonizing of the other side, or are we healing? Be part of your legacy. And then Elisha continued the unfinished ministry of Elijah. We, too, have been entrusted with an unfinished ministry that many before us have been about, spreading the love of God in the world. We, too, have a task to do. Are we engaged with a great and a good and a glorious God and shedding his character abroad in the world? That, too, will be our legacy. It's not whether or not you will have one. It's what will it be, blessing or curse? Life or thank God she's gone, thank God he's done. Legacy. The preacher, the writer, I know him mostly as an author, Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas, in a book called Sacred Parenting, writes about his experience with Lisa, his bride-to-be at that time. They were both finishing up at Western, Western Michigan University. Uh, pardon me, Western Washington University. They were engaged to get married. It was getting down to the last, not just months, but weeks and days. He said, "Every evening, how was it that Shakespeare captured it? Parting is such sweet sorrow. Every evening, as he said goodbye to her at the door, it was so hard to say goodbye and goodnight. Then he would go back to his place. They were so much longing for the time when they got married. And so a little tradition developed. I want to read it to you in Thomas's own words." those daily goodnights soon fell into a little ritual repeated several times a week with similar lines and identical action do you really have to go Lisa would ask yes I'd say knowing full well what would come next then leave your hand Lisa would reach out and bring my palm to her cheek fast forward a dozen years Lisa and I were married and had three children Bedtime now featured kids and their bedtime rituals. Kelly stuffed her thumb in her mouth, her lambskin bunched up by her face, and dropped off to sleep in seconds. Graham flopped down on the bed, usually sleeping with a truck, a plastic sword, or a baseball mitt, and was out in minutes. Allison, well, Allison seemed allergic to bed at night and addicted to it in the morning. Her mother's daughter, if I ever saw one. As I pulled the covers over Allison one night, knowing that no father ever performed a more futile act, Allison said, come closer. Her voice dripped with the devious tone that children mask so poorly. I bent down, and Allison latched onto my arm. Stay here, she said. I can't, I answered. You need your sleep, and it's time for me to turn the lights out. Then leave your hand. Her tiny fingers slipped down and pulled my hand to her face, cupping her cheek. I almost fainted. It seemed so much like her mother in college. Both Allison and Lisa even picked the same cheek to press my palm against. Did your mother tell you to do this, I asked? <laughs> no. Did she ever mention anything about doing this herself? No, why? Because your mom always did the same thing when she and I were back in college. Allison's eyes sparkled. At night, those eyes had more life than a South Carolina wetland. Give me your arm, Allison said, now gripping my elbow to keep my hand on her face. You can go if you just leave your arm. (laughs) Except for her gapped teeth and tiny body. I could have sworn I'd time-traveled into the past to those memorable college days. I felt in a bit of a daze leaving Allison's room. I could imagine in my mind, many decades before, 150 years ago in Germany, a little girl lift her father's large hands to her face. Then I could imagine her as a young woman, same girl, Take a young man's hands and place them against the same cheek. I could imagine a few years later she gripped those hands with a violent clasp as she expelled her first child. I could imagine later still perhaps she, was, she felt the now shrunken hand of that same husband cold with death and one last time placed it to her cheeks, moved it to her lips, and then let it drop down in death. I could imagine. That little girl became my wife's great-grandmother. Who knows how many generations have passed with that same fluid motion. Centuries of blood run through Allison. She takes her place as a part of women from far away lands and generations. I saw Allison in a new light, daughter of millennia, yet future mother of the ages. In such times I recognize a powerful holiness in others. Maybe holiness isn't the right word, but I know it makes me feel small, like I am touching something I have no business touching because it delves so deep, and I am so coarse, so shallow, so unaware of the depth of ages in the women I so feebly love. Legacy. You will pass on something. What will it be? Will it be life even after you're gone? Or will it be joy that you're gone? Our video this morning, Legacy. Our team, I have to tell you, they've got to stop doing that. I cry my way through all three of the last weeks just watching the videos. Legacy. Did you listen to the words that were stated about Dr. Bailey? Three people, their words I remind you of them. First of all, his son, Brooks Bailey, said, I think if I could take one thing from my dad, one thing that I'd want to be the most like, it was just how he was with people. I mean, he just generally cared for everybody. He cared more about others than he did about himself. I think that was a good way to live. Continuing to influence your son, Dr. Bailey, even after your death. That's legacy. Second person, Dr. Robert Wagner, physician leaving his own legacy, but a dear friend and colleague of Dr. Bailey's. Do you remember what he said? Some of you could attest to the truth of this. Dr. Wagner said, you don't learn medicine from a book. You learn medicine from your mentors. And Lynn was the best. One can look at the individuals in thoracic surgery, heart surgery that he mentored. They have been extremely successful, and they have carried that enthusiasm, and I'll sure they'll carry that with them the rest of their professional careers, continuing to influence your students, your mentees after your death. Dr. Bailey, that's legacy. And then the third one, Joyce Johnston Rush. Dear friend, transplant coordinator, did you hear what she said? Well, I think that I'll always carry the essence of him with me. To have that example of how to do life for so many years, it's amazing what he chose to do. I mean, all those people, hundreds would be dead if he hadn't started doing this, and he started, and then others followed. Continuing to give life, even after death. That's legacy. Is that Lynn Bailey, or or is that Elisha? Giving life when death has come. Reminds me of the words of the leader and author John Maxwell who says, if you are successful, it becomes possible for you to leave an inheritance for others, but if you desire to create a legacy, then you need to leave something in others. When you think unselfishly and invest in others, you gain the opportunity to create a legacy that will outlive you. Now, I can imagine something that you might be saying as you sit here this morning. You might be saying, come on, Randy. You're talking legacy. I'm a young person. I'm just getting started. You need to talk to someone else. Be careful. Be careful as you say that. Jehoram was young. As he developed his character, he was young when he stepped onto the throne at 32 years of age. He was young when he set a trajectory for his life that would affect the entire nation. He was even young when he died to no one's regret. Don't say, I'm too young. Or you might be saying, come on, Randy, legacy. I'm too old. It's too late. I can't do anything about the past now. Just go online this afternoon and Google great accomplishments of senior citizens. You may be as amazed as I was. Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, writing some of his best works into his 70s and 80s. Verity, writing the Ave Maria, late decades of his life. Just Google it. You'll find Nelson Mandela, late 70s, becoming president of South Africa. You may even find a name you recognize, Hulda Crooks, oldest woman to summit Mount Fuji in Japan, 91 years of age. Don't tell me you're too old. Or you might say, I'm too ordinary. I'm extremely ordinary. You may remind yourself of the guy wearing the T-shirt I saw that said, I'm no rocket surgeon. No, you're honestly not. You might say, I could wear that T-shirt. I'm just an ordinary person. I I don't even get things straight. I want to tell you that this book is littered with, overflows with the stories of very ordinary boys and girls, men and women, grandmas and grandpas, who had the Holy Spirit get hold of their lives, transform their characters, put them on a new pathway, and that left a legacy that we live out today. Ordinary people. Don't tell me you're too young, too old, too ordinary. Because today is the best day to begin. You will leave a legacy. You will. What will it be? What if you were to decide, I'm going to live an Elisha-like life? Speak the words of God, of grace and of comfort, of hope, of challenge to the world around me. I'm going to be a healing influence in a fractured culture. And I'm going to continue to grab the baton and pass it on, that great chain of ordinary people in the kingdom of God as we seek to leave a legacy in this world. What if you were to do that? Can you imagine? Children, spouses, neighbors, colleagues, friends, patients, employees, long after you're gone, making a choice to take up a challenge A challenge that is most simply stated in these words. So live that when you're gone, your life continues to matter in a good way.